Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Welcome back to New Books in Military History. Each episode features an interview with current historians about their most recent work. During our chat, our guests have an opportunity to share insights into why they chose their particular subject, what guided their research and writing, and special details about their books. This past September saw the 68th anniversary of one of the European Theater of Operations' most familiar campaigns. Conceived by Field Marshal Bernard Law Montgomery, Market Garden was the Western Allies' great gamble in the fall of 1944. With the Nazi war machine appearing to be on the ropes following its ignominious collapse in France, victory seemed for a brief moment to be just within grasp. The single problem in Montgomery's eyes was logistics and the inability of the Anglo-American coalition to maintain the broad front strategy promoted by Chef Commander General Dwight D. Eisenhower. By offering a bold departure from his normal cautious outlook, Montgomery convinced Eisenhower to favor his army group with the supplies needed to carry out a bold stroke aimed at the lower Rhine crossings in Holland. Through an airborne coup de main, the Allies would seize three highway bridges at Niemegen, Eindhoven, and Arnhem, opening up a pathway into the North German plain, and in Montgomery's view, very likely ending the war by Christmas. Of course, we know the operation was a dismal failure, with the British 1st Airborne Division nearly annihilated at Arnhem. As Montgomery went a bridge too far, in the words of journalist cum historian Cornelius Ryan. Indeed, by this point, with numerous historical monographs and edited collections, a feature film, dozens of documentaries, an HBO miniseries, and more board games and computer games than can be counted, one might be forgiven for thinking that there's little left to be said about Operation Market Garden. But then along came historian John C. McManus's exhaustive study of the American dimension of the battles for the Dommel, Maas, and Wild River crossings, and the subsequent winter fighting on the so-called island between the Val and Lower Rhine estuary. McManus's book, September Hope, The American Side of a Bridge Too Far, is built from a treasure trove of oral testimonies, official after-action reports, captured documents, and other sources to create the single most comprehensive account of the fighting from the perspective of the U.S. 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions, as well as that of the 104th Infantry and 7th Armored Divisions. The book is a very compelling account of a very bitter and misguided operation, but its true strength lies in McManus's own insights and conclusions regarding the viability of the operation and Shayef's failings that allow the operation to go forward. Well, hello, John. Hey, Bobby. How are you today? I'm doing quite well. Enjoying the weather. 
everybody. Today we're talking with John McManus about his new book, September Hope, The American Side of a Bridge Too Far. Now, for those who aren't familiar with John's work, he is a prolific author of the American military experience, frequently from the personal perspective of the participants. I've been familiar with John's work since his 1996 book, The Deadly Brotherhood, The American Combat Soldier in World War II. He's also an associate professor of U.S. military history at Missouri University of Science and Technology and is the official historian for the Army's 7th Infantry Regiment. John, after that intro, would you mind telling us a bit more about yourself and your motivation? Yeah, sure. I have one uh, pleasant update. I've just been promoted to full professor just uh, this month. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, Yeah, my... uh, my approach in in military history is to study the average soldier and to get a sense of what perhaps the experience might have been like, uh, attitudes, motivations, you know, questions like that, uh, but also to see them in the context of greater battles and greater events. Uh, I'm a firm believer that, that uh, you know, certainly in time of war, it's, it's the bottom up that tends to decide things more so than, than the top down. And, and uh, so I've tended to focus a, a lot of my work and a lot of my books on that. Now, this one, uh, September Hope, the American side of a bridge too far, uh, is designed to, ju- to do just that, to sort of fill in the U.S. side of the story. I'm, I'm a, a trained American historian, and so I, I tend to, to, uh, to be very curious about Americans under certain circumstances. And, of course, like, like many others, I, I uh, read A Bridge Too Far and saw the movie, which I considered both to be just a great classic. And uh, really, Ryan, Cornelius Ryan, the, the author of, American, of, uh, of A Bridge Too Far, by his own admission, didn't really give the kind of depth uh, in telling the American side of the story as he would have hoped. Um, and it's one of the things I saw in his correspondence in the in the Ryan Collection, Ohio U. And it, it really did occur to me that that was sort of the um, you know a major part of the story that perhaps needed to still be told. Uh, historians, I think, have covered the, the British experience at Arnhem very very well. I don't know that there's a whole lot new to say, mm-hmm. uh, but I do I do think there was a lot uh, to look at for the, the the two American divisions that were involved in Market Garden. Well, as you point out as well, it's actually three if you factor in the 101st Infantry Division later after Market Garden. But we'll get to that later. Sure. Um, I got to say, you're, I, I found your book to be really a masterful exercise in narrative history. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was excellent. And, you know, my next comment, I'm not seeking to be critical, but I, I do want to ask you, as an author and as a historian, how do you think narrative history affects our understanding of a battle that has been so thoroughly discussed in various media? I mean, we're not just talking about books and films here. I mean, there's memoirs, documentary. Uh, I'm worried even computer games and board games that are very well researched on the topic. Yeah, you're right. It's, I mean, Market Garden, I think, when you're looking at the European theater, is second only to the Normandy invasion in terms of public interest and popularity and books on it. And that actually was what was so remarkable to me, that so much had been done, uh, but it really did tend to focus. And I, I mean, especially on the book side, more so than maybe the video game side, it really did tend to focus on the British at Arnhem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on this question of whether 30 Corps should have gotten there uh, or why it didn't get there and all these other things. And it, it just seemed to me like uh, the experience of the 82nd and 101st 
had, had not been looked at in the, in the kind of depth that it had. And that's exciting to me as a historian, that here we have a well-known battle narrative that needs more telling, mm-hmm. uh, that, that we can uncover more scholarship. The other side of it, too, that occurred to me was the uh, the aviator side. Uh, the 8th Air Force flew a couple of extremely important missions in support of Market Garden, and I, I would have been hard-pressed to, to name me much of any book that really covered that in the kind of primary sort depth that I felt that uh, really it deserved. And also, the other part of it, uh, as you mentioned, the 104th Infantry Division, or Timberwolves, who were involved in um, a terrible campaign after Market Garden to clear out the Skelt Estuary to get Antwerp running. Um, so this is, I think, part of the Market Garden story on the other side, you know, that it, it's one of the consequences of the failure of Garden, is that uh, the British, Canadian, old Americans have to worry about being in the Skelt Estuary. And uh, the fourth gets involved in this. So I see the experience of the 104th Timberwolves as being tied to Garden. And I think that's what had not been been done. Uh, I think that it's, that's one of the fascinating things we see in, uh, in military history is that sometimes uh, well-known battles are not well-known as we think. And uh, sometimes uh, there have been sources that have never been used or uh, really not understood in their full context. A lot of different areas to go, and uh, you know. So when when I looked at Market Garden, that was what was particularly exciting to me as a as a scholar. John, I'm sure most of our audience is very aware of the battle. I mean, it's you know the nature of our blog. But can we set up Market Garden for the listeners exactly what the context of it was? Sure, and then, of course, as you know, and obviously in history, context is everything. Now, the, the context for Market Garden is Allied successes at the end of the summer of 1944. I mean, uh, the war is going extremely well, as well as it ever had for the, for the Allies in Europe at that point in time. In the East, uh, the Soviets had uh, administered hammer blows on the on the German army. They had launched uh, Operation Bagration, which, uh, you know, happened in late June 1944 to coincide with the Western Allies' Normandy invasion. And uh, the Soviets had pushed the Germans out of Russia, out of Ukraine, uh, the Soviets had uh, had gotten uh, to Warsaw. They'd gone in Balkans, so you know the German army had absorbed some pretty major losses there. And of course, on the Western Front, you'd had the Norman invasion, the bitter summer of stalemate fighting in Normandy. Eventually, of course, the Allies break out in uh, late July and early August um, and have a mobile flashing campaign throughout France, liberate most of France most notably Paris, on August the 25th. Um, and they liberate uh, the majority of Belgium, uh, bits and pieces of Holland. They're close to Luxembourg and the western German frontier. So it, it just really seems like Germany could be on the verge of collapse. But Hitler barely survives an attempt on his life in late July. Um, but the problem for the Allies is they're victims of their own success, and that uh, the closer they advance to Germany, the farther away they are from their supply base back in Normandy, in the Normandy beaches. And uh, the Allies really don't have the kind of deep water harbors and ports that they're going to need to supply their mass armies on the continent for a big move into Germany. Uh, so General Eisenhower, the overall commander, is really dealing with this issue by the end of August and early September uh, that he's having to slow down the pace of his operations pretty, pretty significantly. He himself was uh, distant in the front line. His headquarters was still back in Normandy, often out of communication. Uh, it was really not a good situation at all. Um, the Allies have the stuff 
but they can't get it to where it needs to be. This is the key issue you're running into by, by the end of August and early September. So what that means, you're facing hard choices about uh, priorities, about who you can supply, which push you can, uh, you can order and which you cannot. Um, and so you see really two main uh, viewpoints emerge as to what to do next. Uh, the single thrust or single front viewpoint that, well, let's put all the supplies we do have, give absolute priority to one major push in Germany, uh, that while Germany is tottering now, let's give it a major push, maybe get to Berlin, and we will end the war um, in the fall of 1944. Of course, uh, Bernard Montgomery is most heavily associated with that. But, uh, you know, George Patton, too, favored that. Uh, both of them, of course, wanted absolute priority of supply for themselves and for their own push. Uh, Monty, in particular, wants a push towards Berlin and to outflank the Siegfried Line in western Germany, the belt of fortifications that the Germans had. And, and uh, so that's, of course, where Market Garden comes from. The other... The other viewpoint is the broad front, which Eisenhower is associated with, uh, and it basically says, well, you know, that if we have one thrust that's going to be vulnerable to counterattacks and flanking attacks, and uh, we won't be maximizing our real advantage, which in the long run is supply and material and air power and firepower and manpower and all those kinds of things the Americans, to a great extent, have supplied the Allies. And so Eisenhower really envisions a kind of shoulder-to-shoulder, broad-front advance into Germany to overwhelm Germany with a war of attrition. Um, and I, I see that in the kind of larger context of American history, it's a very American viewpoint. It's quite similar to what Lincoln and Grant do to the Confederacy in the Civil War. Montgomery's viewpoint is really uh, an inherently British viewpoint in the sense that he understands Britain is really near the end of its tether. Um, at uh, you know by the fall of 1944, manpower-wise, financially, you name it. Plus. The Germans have been launching the V-weapons, uh, rockets, at uh, at British cities much of the summer, and uh, a new kind of rocket had come into into play, uh, the V-2, which is deadlier than the V-1. Um, and that's happening by early September, and a lot of the launch sites were in Holland. Uh, so <clears throat> Monty devises this plan known as Market Garden. And basically what it is, he envisions an airborne drop in Holland, behind German lines, anywhere from about 15 to 60-something miles, from about Eindhoven up to Arnhem. Uh, Three Allied Airborne Divisions, British 1st, the U.S. 101st near Eindhoven, and the U.S. 82nd near the Nijmegen area. Uh, And so their job is to capture some of the key bridges over the major river systems, the Moss, the Wall, the Rhine, of course, um, and uh, to hold the road open. And then Garden, that part of the operation, is uh, tanks and other armored vehicles of the British 30 Corps will punch through the German lines, go straight up that that road net, that corridor in Holland, hook up with the paratroopers, get over the bridges, uh, and ultimately the hope that Monty has is that, uh, you know, you'll get over the Rhine at Arnhem, go into northern Germany and really have a slashing campaign, go to Berlin and, and win the war. That's the concept behind Market Garden. Okay, okay. Um, you know, in the setup for the campaign in your book, you describe Monty's feelings for Eisenhower. You know, if I can quote directly from it, Montgomery liked Eisenhower as a man, but he thought him ill-suited for direct command of armies in the field. Ike was a diplomat, an organizer, a big-picture strategic thinker who excelled at managing people. 
He was not, in the field marshal's opinion, a combat commander. That's the and that's the end of the quote. And I guess the question is where we start to, to dive into some of the controversies about Market Garden. Was Montgomery necessarily wrong? Was he off base in his description of Eisenhower? Uh, I think he, he underestimated him somewhat. Uh, that, that Ike wasn't just a, a babe in the woods when it came to combat command and military operations. That um, I think Monty makes the mistake of thinking just because Eisenhower is a big picture thinker and truly a diplomat in, in many ways and a political thinker, that he doesn't really understand combat command and logistics. Now, it's true, Montgomery had a lot more battle experience than Eisenhower could have ever had. And so you can understand Monty's viewpoint. Monty had served on the front lines of World War One, had been badly wounded. He'd seen, of course, a lot of combat in World War Two at a more senior level, obviously. Uh, and Eisenhower, as, uh, as I'm sure everybody knows, had, had not served in combat in World War One. He had not even gotten in theater. He thought that would end his career. In World War Two, obviously, he's at the senior level the whole way. So it's not as if he never hears a shot fired, but obviously he's not leading soldiers at the front. So Montgomery's point of view is perfectly understandable, but I do think he underestimates to some extent Eisenhower's proficiency at military command, too, that uh, Eisenhower was a, was a, just a, one of the Army's most brilliant students um, in mm-hmm. most of the uh, the staff and uh, you know training colleges in, in terms of his understanding of how to make war. Right. Uh, so though he doesn't necessarily have hands-on battle experience, and that's a deficiency, I admit, uh, it doesn't mean that he has no understanding of combat command. But what Monty is pushing for by the fall of 44 is to have Eisenhower as a basic over, you know, a titular head of the whole operation, but to have one ground commander, similar to the way Eisenhower had one air commander and one naval commander, uh, you know, Lee Mallory and uh, and Admiral Bertram Ramsey. Uh, so, and of course, Monty wants that commander to be him, <laughs> to be himself, <laughs> which shouldn't surprise anybody. Uh, but obviously that would have been just too controversial, and it would have really angered Omar Bradley and certainly George Patton. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Monty has this kind of almost patronizing opinion of Ike as, oh, you know, really good guy, but as he will say later in life, no soldier. Right. Well, he's plenty of soldier. But there are different kinds of soldiers. And uh, so I think that he, he dismissed Eisenhower too readily. But I, I can also readily understand his frustration with Eisenhower by the end of August, being really quite out of touch with what's going on in the in the front lines, out of communication. Uh, there are mixed signals coming from Eisenhower's headquarters as to what the key objectives ought to be, what the strategy ought to be. Um, mm-hmm. Monty's not alone in his frustration. Omar Bradley's frustrated, too. So that's perfectly understandable. Well, of course it is. You know, the argument, I guess, could be made that, Eisenhower and Shayef itself was a vi- victim of its own successes that weren't entirely anticipated to be quite so sudden and dramatic in August. But leaving that aside, now I like to talk about personalities because you, you do a great job, I think, of, of sketching out these various major players, these major leaders on the America side from different perspectives. Um, you know, And leads me to the question is, as we look more deeply into Market Garden itself, how well suited were the senior airborne commanders? You know, we're talking about Lieutenant Generals Brereton, Lewis Brereton, First uh, Allied Airborne Army, Matthew Ridgway, uh, the American 18th Airborne Corps, and Frederick Browning, the British First Airborne Corps. How well suited were these commanders for the task at hand? Um, this is, of course, purely my opinion, but I think uh, when you talk about those three, you're talking about uh, uh, one, one for three. Uh, mm-hmm. I think Ridgeway is extremely well-suited. The other two, not so much. Brereton is uh, is an aviator. 
Um, and he's, you know, he's a long-serving, honorable kind of guy, uh, but he's really not the Army's most brilliant light, um, the Army Air Force, I guess I should say. He, you know, he had, uh, I think you could argue that his experience in the Philippines at the early part of the war um, in, in command there was not good, not successful at all under MacArthur. He'd lost half his planes on the ground in the early days of the war, and that was partially his fault, partially MacArthur's fault. Um, he had not exactly distinguished himself as, as commander of the Ninth the Air Force. Uh, and, you know, as commander of First Allied Airborne Army, certainly he can contribute the aviation perspective, uh, and especially about troop carriers. Now, on the other hand, though, I don't think he has a very firm grasp of airborne operations um, mm-hmm. as a as a troop paratrooper, an airborne commander, or a glider commander might. Uh, and he's he has a kind of political whiff to him as well, and, and certainly not much of a combat element to his command. Uh, I do think there, there probably would have been better commanders suited for that, um, and partially because Brereton didn't really want the command either. Uh, so he's he's already in, in perhaps in conflict with his colleagues, some of whom have more real hands-on experience than he does. Uh, Browning is a is a long-serving and, and very fine soldier, but the, the the honest reality, and I would say it if it was the other way around, um, you know, a British commander with more experience than an American, mm-hmm. uh, Browning can't even hold a candle to Matthew Ridgway uh, in terms of you know, combat experience, leading airborne operations, just overall excellence as a soldier. Matthew Ridgway is, um, and again, we're talking my opinion here, I fully admit, Right. Um, Matthew Ridgway is one of the finest soldiers the Army produced in the 20th century. Um, to me, that's that's an undeniable reality, and I think he should have been placed in command of, uh, of Market Garden. Uh, and I think that's one of the real mistakes that Brereton and the other commanders make, but that's to some extent a political decision, uh, mm-hmm. that it's really, to a great extent, a, a British-authored operation, so it's going to have a British commander. Uh, well, Browning didn't have the experience that Ridgway had, and so Ridgway ends up as really in this kind of netherworld <laughs> throughout Market Garden, not really in command, and yet his soldiers under someone else's command. Ridgway is there on the ground after a while and frustrated and angry, and um, he's really he's really quite resentful for much of the rest of his life that he was not chosen to, to command Market Garden. And I think if you, you asked him in an honest moment, uh, General Ridgway would probably feel that it could have turned out differently under his command. Whether that's true, who knows? But. Right. Right. Well, we'll come to that what if in a little bit. Um, it certainly, you know, it, it speaks volumes as well about the, I guess, the dilemmas and the problems associated with coalition command or coalition operations. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, you certainly have to have a balance. And, you know, you can understand why there have to be decisions made beyond just purely military at times. And, it's, of course, it's no aspersion on Browning as some sort of babe in the woods who doesn't necessarily know what he's doing. I'm not saying that. It's a mm-hmm. question of who is the absolute best person uh, to, to command. And that's, I think, right. that, uh, and exactly as you say, this is one of the problems inherent in coalition warfare. That's the way it goes. Right. Well, I mean, there's also, though, I mean, we're, we're talking about an American combat operation, we're looking at the American Airborne Division commanders, you know, both Major Generals uh, James Gavin, 82nd Airborne, Maxwell Taylor, 101st Airborne. How do you assess them? Uh, I think both of them are, are, I mean, excellent commanders, and in particular Gavin, but uh, I'll, I'll address Taylor first, who I think is 
sort of the very personification of just professional competence in many ways. He's not an inspirational commander. He never really has this quite uh, uh, personal connection with the soldiers. There's always a, an air of uh, kind of sophistication about him or distance from the soldiers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he really is one of the airborne pioneers. Uh, he's a man who demonstrates his courage time and again in World War II, first as the, the uh, artillery commander, the 82nd Airborne, and of course later on as commander of the 101st Airborne Division when uh, General Bill Lee had a had a heart attack, and Taylor took over really quite ably. Uh, he had parachuted into Normandy. He had guided the division in Normandy really quite well. He had obviously prepared it well for combat. Um, Taylor obviously has a, a major career ahead of himself. Mm-hmm. Um, he's going to become chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and uh, he's so he's a, he also has a whiff of, of a political side about him too, um, and. And perhaps that's one of the things that, that establishes a bit of distance between Taylor and his soldiers. But uh, it really would be hard to look at most anything he would do and, and say, boy, here's a guy who doesn't know what he was doing or uh, doesn't plan properly. I mean, Taylor, for instance, demands that the market garden plan get amended because initially the plan calls for his division to be just scattered all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, dozens of places to capture various objectives. And he goes to the wall on that and uh, argues with, with more senior level commanders ultimately up to Monty himself, that we, we really just can't do this. We need to consolidate our objectives, and that was a very wise thing. He also puts his division in a, in a position um, to hold the road open to prevent total disaster for Market Garden. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way the 101st fights, I think, is a reflection on Taylor. Um, Gavin, to me, though, is in a completely different category um, of one of the very finest commanders in the entire United States Army, regardless of airborne or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, as you probably know, he's um, you know the youngest division commander. He's tied for the youngest, I guess you should say. General Frederick was born the same week, <laughs> yeah. a few days after Gavin. So he's a little older than Frederick, but they're both young. You know, they're 37 years old. And Gavin, uh, his story is, is remarkable. Um, you know, he goes from being an orphan uh, to to come to being raised in a, in a very very unhappy uh, Irish American foster home in the coal country of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, leaves home to, to join the army at seventeen. Uh, you know, as a private soldier, and ends up earning an appointment to West Point. Mm-hmm. Um, that's I mean that right there. That's a remarkable thing. He didn't even have a high school diploma. Um, so he has to put himself through West Point, even though he's way behind his peers scholastically. But he's, there's a persistent intellectual curiosity about Gavin through his entire life. And he's a self-made soldier and a self-made intellect, uh, intellectual as well, military intellectual. And, you know, he ends up, of course, as one of the airborne pioneers, extremely successful combat commander. He, I think, personifies kind of inspirational, hands-on uh, command. He's seen by many in his division as just uh, another combat soldier yeah. walking around with his M1 Garand, uh, Slim Jim, Jumpin' Jim, you know, as, as they called him. He seemed to be everywhere and anywhere. And he Do- was the kind of guy they idolized. And doing all this with a fractured back as well. During the right, exactly. <laughs> he lands in a turnip field on September 17th, and it's a hard landing, unlike many troopers that day. And that's right, he breaks two vertebrae in his back. He didn't know it until years later. Um, Gavin, another thing that gives you an indicator of him, uh, General Niles Dempsey, the commander of the British Second Army, of which these airborne divisions were eventually a part, mm-hmm. later on during the stalemate phase of, of Market Garden, comes in and sees uh, Gavin's command post in the in the woods out there near the Grosbeck Ridge, and 
And he realizes Gavin's just living in a hole like everybody else. And he says, oh, I'll give you my my command van. I'll give you a nice trailer to live in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, Gavin is a, Gavin is an unfailingly kind of polite individual. Um, he's just, just wired that way. He's very genial. He's, he has a, a very sly sense of humor. Um, and so he's not the type to, to tell Dempsey, hey, I don't want that. I'm too tough or you know, something like that. <laughs> he accepts it, but he never uses it. Uh, he, he actually preferred to live like any other infantryman in a, in a foxhole um, and in, in a trench, a slit trench. And that's, that's highly unusual. Highly unusual and tremendously inspirational as well. To his troopers, most definitely. It, you still hear them telling stories to this day about him. It, sure. he's a kind of, again, you know how how cynical soldiers are often about their leaders, especially senior-level leaders and all of that kind of stuff. But in the 82nd Airborne, there wasn't that kind of cynicism. They, they idolized Gavin. Um, and, and Gavin... He was. He had this kind of compassion about him too. Uh, it, obviously, he was a he was a serious combat commander uh, and a fighter for the first order. But he, he had this kind of love in his heart for uh, for those he commanded, for the Dutch, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and for, as an historian, one of the things that I, I'm grateful to Gavin for uh, is he thought like an historian, and he preserved. He made a really strong effort to preserve all of the history the best he could throughout his life, not mm-hmm. just Market Garden, but the rest of his remarkable career. And uh, But he kept a diary, and he, you know, he gathered info from his men because he was so in touch with them throughout his life, and, and he made sure this was preserved. His correspondence with Conius Ryan is mm-hmm. fascinating. Um, and, you know, he thought like an historian, and he thought like a military intellectual in so many ways. Um, and, he, and, and he did this without necessarily trying to make himself look all that good. And uh, that's what I appreciated, that he had that kind of objectivity. He was no, you know, nobody's perfect. He wasn't right. perfect. But uh, I, I really appreciated his effort to do that. You know, one mistake he makes, a major mistake in Market Garden, he did not designate it a clear successor because right. he got killed. And he almost does get killed right after he lands. He's involved in a firefight, and uh, he comes pretty close to getting killed. Um, but, you know, he's fortunate enough to survive that and many other close calls during Market Garden. Well, had he been killed, there was no assistant division commander. So the 82nd Airborne would have been plunged into command chaos. Um, and that, obviously that would not have been a good thing. I mean, that right. sort of happened with the British 1st Airborne Division when Urquhart got uh, sidetracked. You know, he got isolated for a while. Right. Right. And, you know, particularly in light of all the problems the British were having with, with their communications. But that, that's, again, that's another story for us. I want to get to some of the what-if questions up mm-hmm. front. Uh, first one I've got for you is, do you think the operation should have been postponed or canceled after that September 12th reconnaissance flight? Uh, the one revealing the presence of the 9th and 10th SS Ah, uh, That's the one, yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, of course... Um, my opinion is that the operation should have never gone forward regardless of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, yes, I think it certainly should have been canceled. It would have, it really would have taken Montgomery to do it, and he wasn't going to, obviously. Right. Uh, so it would have taken Eisenhower's intercession. And, you know, earlier we were talking about the political side of coalition warfare. Right. It would have been a political decision in many ways to scotch a, a British-authored operation. Well, that would have been at odds also with, with Eisenhower's leadership style, which was really to delegate local authority to to theater or rather to army commanders yeah that's right you know so that that would have been a totally just you know break for him does browning have any role in pushing ahead is is it all on montgomery though 
Uh, it is it is partially Browning. Uh, yes, uh, you know Browning is the one who most famously dismisses the the photographs of the <laughs> of the uh, SS Panzer divisions and says, "Well, I, you know, I won't. You shouldn't worry about them all that much. Um, not even sure that those tanks are operational." And You're course, channeling Dirk Bogard there, whether you realize it or not. That, well, and that's exactly what he said. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, according to Urquhart, right. Major Brian Urquhart, that's exactly what. Uh, Browning had told him, uh, and also I found in the in the Ryan collection, um, I think there, it was one of Browning's uh, key aides who was in on some of these sessions too, and kind of corroborated the same thing. His name escapes me at the moment, mm-hmm. but uh, there was this not necessarily a breezy attitude. I don't want to say that, but an attitude of well. You know, don't worry. This is going to work out. The Germans are really, really tottering here. And right. We're just going to have to land the haymaker on them, and then they're going down. They're on the verge of collapse. And uh, no, so the way that's portrayed in the in the film, I have to say, is pretty good, except for Major Urquhart, the the intelligence officer. Is portrayed as this kind of sh- uh, shaky, doddering, nerdy kind of guy. He really wasn't that kind of guy at all. but but he he was quite insistent uh, according to his own testimony quite insistent that it uh, did not go forward right well I mean another dimension too I guess is the fact that there have been so many postponed or cancelled airborne operations leading up to Market Garden yeah most definitely about a dozen plus and so there was a lot of frustration there in the, in the airborne circles about getting back into the combat. And of course, Eisenhower wanted these guys in action. They were, he thought of them as some of their, his best soldiers. Mm-hmm. And he had expended a lot of resources and uh, finances to train them and ready them. So he wants them in action. And uh, the lines had been just moving too quickly throughout the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, there, there's certainly, you know, Charles McDonald had uh, written most famously, you know, the airborne were like coins burning a hole in Shafe's pocket. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Mm. Let me give you the second what if. Was it co- the correct move made in putting the, giving the 1st Airborne Division the primary goal? Shouldn't that have gone to, or do you think it, it would have been better had that role of taking Arnhem Bridge gone to one of the American divisions? Uh, I'd, I'd say just selfishly from an American perspective, I'm glad it didn't because we would have been talking about one annihilated U.S. Airborne yeah. Division. Yeah. Um, I, I think the British First Airborne Division was as well prepared for that as any airborne division could be. I mean, these were these are truly outstanding soldiers. Now, they don't necessarily have seasoned leadership at the senior level. I suppose that's true. That's different than, say, Gavin or Taylor. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that any division that's going to be dropped in there is going to have a difficult time because of the flaws in Market Garden. It certainly doesn't help that the, the British Airborne uh, had decided to drop what was it, seven, eight, nine miles away from the right. Arnhem Bridge? But that really wasn't their their call. Uh, the RAF had overruled them and said, "Well, we're not going to drop you that close." Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, that's a, a major mistake. Uh, is it a mistake that uh, that Taylor or Gavin would have put up with? Well, now you're talking about the international coalition issues here too. Uh, sure. You're having to depend on the RAF to drop you in there, which I don't know whether they would have, but it's possible. Um, and are you going to go against what they say? I don't know. But I, I think that I tend to look at it as any division that's dropped in that Arnhem area is, is probably doomed because of the flaws in Market Garden. It's a zero-defect operation, right. which everything has to go right. And, of course, obviously, pretty quickly it doesn't. Uh, so the Poles and the 1st Airborne Division end up in trouble, and I think that uh, that would have been true for the 82nd and the 101st, just in my opinion. Sure, sure. 
Well, again, these are what ifs that everybody seems to, to walk away with from being exposed to the literature. And, and you're right. I mean, there is, I guess, a sense of perhaps some national chauvinism associated with, you know, we could have done it better or we would not have done better. But, um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, m- much of what people assume about Market Garden is informed, of course, by the, the Levitt-Ryan project, A Bridge Too Far. You know, but also, to be fair, you know, more recently, Steven Spielberg and, and Stephen Ambrose's Band of Brothers. Right. You know, what I like about your book is you present a much testier and much more erratic battle account from Drop Day through to the Nijmegen Bridge fight. Would you care to highlight some of the, the, you know, a few examples of the early troubles that the American airborne troops faced on drop day? Oh, most definitely. You know, drop day, even though it was a pretty smooth drop for the majority of the troopers, uh, within a pretty short time, most of these guys are involved in some some very sharp battles. Uh, you take like the 101st Airborne, for instance. Um, two of them that aren't two of the battles that aren't really portrayed in Band of Brothers because Easy Company was involved was not involved in these. Um, the battle at the Sun Bridge, mm-hmm. um, you know, fighting through the town, through the woods there against. Um, uh, mobile 88 millimeter guns, which was a brutal, brutal struggle, getting close to the bridge and then seeing it blown up in their faces. This is kind of portrayed and not particularly accurately in the, in the movie A Bridge Too Far, right. um, but it, 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 there's so much more to it as to what happens and what the consequences were from that. First um, Battalion 506 is, is involved within, I think, maybe two hours of their drop in one of their sharpest fights of the entire war, um, you know, and that's including the Battle of the Bulge. And because of, you know, when you consider soldiers going against these 88-millimeter guns, I mean, that, that is pretty serious opposition. Yeah. And then, you know, then they're worried about getting wounded by the debris as the bridge explodes. So that's another component to this thing as well. Um, so I think that I... I uh, I accent that one pretty pretty uh, sharply because I think it has some major reverberations. Obviously, when the sun bridge is blown, mm-hmm. it means uh, that Market Garden's timetable is, is behind already. Right. You know, troops can move across that canal, but not vehicles. So that, so you need British engineers to rebuild the bridge, and that's, of course, portrayed in the movie. Um, what is not portrayed in the movie or or all that much in the Bridge Too Far book, or all that many books, is the fighting over near Best, mm-hmm. the Best Bridge. Um, and that that whole thing, and in the Zongshia Forest, that pretty quickly turns into a hellacious struggle on both sides, as both sides reinforce in reaction to the other. You have troops from the German 59th Infantry Division reacting to the airborne drops nearby, and then you got the 502nd Parachute Infantry, which is to take this backup objective best, the best bridges, just in case sun gets blown up. Uh, well, pretty quickly, they end up involved in a uh, kind of standoff fight in and around the forest. And then you, one of the one of the things I cover is uh, Lieutenant Edward Wierzbowski's platoon, uh, which moves for the bridges and ends up in uh, what I think is an almost Alamo-like struggle, yeah. uh, just, just involved with swarms of German reinforcements around there. And that's, that's of course, where Joe Mann, um, you know, falls on a grenade and earns the Medal of Honor. Um, mm-hmm. The Germans blow up the best bridge. It's, it's really quite an odyssey of what happens there. It's also back in the forest, which is about, oh, a quarter to a mile to a half mile away, but might as well be on the moon, you know. So for Wisbrowski, uh, back in the forest is where Lieutenant Colonel Robert Cole is killed by a sniper, and he had earned the Medal of Honor for his actions in Normandy. 
Um, this ends up as a, a major struggle to hold a flank open. Right. And, and no one anticipated that uh, on either side. Um, the 82nd is involved in some pretty pretty uh, nasty battles from the get-go as well, and, and really primarily around the Grave Bridge, um, which you have Lieutenant Jocko Thompson, his guys from E Company 504th, who move for the bridge from the south side, and then the rest of their battalion from the north side, a pincers movement, uh, ends up as a very close-in kind of struggle against pillboxes and 20-millimeter guns mm. and really quite a nasty sort of thing. Um, you know, they, they take that bridge, and it's an important objective, and they're able to hold on to it. And then, of course, uh, the, the 82nd pushes for the Nijmegen Bridge at the first night, and once again runs into these German reinforcements. So what that's telling you um, is, in a bigger picture sense, the Germans are reacting quicker right. than you ever expected. And they've got people nearby, and these are not just... Stomach battalions, <laughs> yeah. famously uh, surmised. Uh, these are, uh, you know, enough of them are pretty decent quality soldiers with good, good uh, weapons. Well, that, that, that's one thing I remember. I think it was either from Cornelius Ryan or maybe Robert Kershaw's book, um, It Never Snows in September, yeah, that right. the German response was, you know, except for the 9th and 10th SS Panzer, was pretty much made up of stomach battalions and, and second and third grade troops. And you're pointing out that's not at all the case here. It is not the case. I mean, certainly you have some of those guys there, and you've got your, like, uh, what do we call them, militia, Volksdeutsche types, yeah. who, uh, who are ethnic Germans and quartered in Grav or something and like to drink in Grav, you know, whatever. You've got those guys, but you have enough other guys, many of them coming from 15th Army in the Skelt area, mm -hmm. ironically enough, like the 59th Infantry Division, like the 85th Infantry Division, like the... Uh, like General Kurt Student and his airborne types, I say that it with air quotes, a lot of them weren't really parachute no, trained. But they were guys that the 101st especially had seen time and again, too. Definitely. Yeah, and they're going to see them again, especially the most famously uh, in the sand dunes around Erda, mm -hmm. um, a little Dutch town sort of west of the of the corridor. Uh, they just, they're in a position to make all kinds of trouble. And then you get some panzer brigades that the Germans hurriedly, you know, move by railroad into the into the area under a guy named von Maltzon. Mm -hmm. and, and they start to attack, you know, the Sun Bridge area. It really doesn't take that much, is sort of my overall point. It doesn't take super soldiers to disrupt this whole thing because it's on such a shoestring. Yeah. And you add then 9th and 10th SS Panzer to the mix, and there are a lot of their vehicles and weapons you're bound to end up with problems. And that's exactly what happened. Right. You know, amazing. Amazing. Yeah. You know, it's remarkable, you know, your book too. I mean, how eager the Dutch were not only to be liberated, you know, or to see Americans or British soldiers finally after all this time of waiting, but to take part in their own liberation. You know, and, and the, I, I walk away feeling that they really are the unsung heroes of your narrative. Most definitely. Yeah, the Dutch are a big part of my book. And one of, you know, part of it comes from, you know, when I went and did research there, you know, and looked at the battle areas and met people and dealt with local historians and all that, and, and it just got the flavor of the Dutch side of this and how much it affected them, how important that is to the story. Mm -hmm. um, part of it, too, was the work that Ryan had done, uh, collecting firsthand accounts from either resistance people or just everyday Dutch, um, you know, and a lot of it in English, because mm -hmm. so many of the Dutch speak English. Great sources. So it was fascinating to me as an American historian to see how they viewed the U.S. soldiers, what kind of experiences they had with them, and 
Yes, exactly. How they were participating in this campaign from the start, even if they weren't necessarily, quote, resistance people. Yeah. How they were participating. Uh, and that, that part of the story, uh, I think, is seminal, uh, oh, yeah. a seminal aspect of it. There's, because that's what the American veterans remembered the most, is the friendship of the Dutch and their esteem for the country and the fact that the Dutch are major agents in their own liberation mm-hmm. and pay a heavy, heavy price for it. Well, I was going to say, I mean, they're at a tremendous risk as well for reprisal. Huge. I mean, and that's what, you know, one of the parts of the book I talk about, Captain Ari Bestebircha, who, yeah. of course, is a, a Dutch Army soldier who had been, you know, exiled, um, ends up with OSS training, leading a what's called a Jedburg team, mm-hmm. multinational. So he's got a couple of Americans with him, and I think a, I think a British soldier, but I don't recall. But he's also the liaison to Gavin and the 82nd Airborne. So he's organizing as many Dutch resistance guys as he can get during this whole thing. And remember, they have deep divisions among them, too, political mm-hmm. divisions. Uh, so Bester Birch is trying to officiate all of that. Um, and he ends up, you know, telling a lot of these guys, hey, you know, the Germans catch you, you're going to be executed. You're not, it's not like an American soldier who can just surrender yeah. uh, and be treated as a POW. Not well, but treated as that. And, you know, so there's a lot more at stake for these guys. Uh, and not to mention just the everyday people whose homes are now a battleground um, yeah. and, and are suffering terribly over this. Uh, they pay a heavy price. Oh, Eindhoven being bombed, I mean, shortly after liberation. Most of, like at Eindhoven, yeah. exactly. Yeah, the Germans bombed that heavily with great loss of life. Mm. You know, the interest of time, I mean, I, we obviously aren't about to end yet, but in the interest of time, we have to condense so much of the narrative into single questions about objectives and such. And with that in mind, you know, I, I again, am deeply compelled by your account for the fighting around Nijmegen Bridge. No public account I've read prior to this really brings home just how bitter and near run this fight was. Um, you know, first, the first point is, you know, if you can comment on that. But secondly, I, I found it as a moment that highlights, you know, the, the one of those points of the general, the genuine comradeship and fighting grit of American and British soldiers serving together in the operation. Definitely. Yeah. Most definitely. I mean, you see that with uh, guards armored and uh, 2nd Battalion, 505th Parachute Infantry, Vandervoort and his guys. I mean, they are fighting in a, in a literally room-to-room bitter urban struggle um, near the Nijmegen Riverfront. Uh, and, and this is often with the, you know, the, the SS soldiers and a lot of the, the excellent weaponry that they've got. Mm-hmm. Those guys aren't going to give in. And they know that a lot's at stake, too. And it is, it is one of the most bitter urban small unit actions among involving Western Front soldiers, of which I'm aware. Um, and it, it, there are strong bonds of comradeship between the Americans and the British, working with the British tankers, seeing what it cost them. That's mm-hmm. a tough environment for tanks. And, you know, you had anti-tank guns that just lit these British tanks up. And you've got guys burning. Mm. Um, just an awful situation. Then you have buildings burning. The Germans are trying to smoke out the the U.S. airborne infantry. Uh, this had turned into a into a horrible, horrible situation by September 19th and 20th. Much less than the wall crossing. Ugh. 
uh, just, you know, the paratroopers on canvas boats, rickety boats going straight across the river um, with British help there, too. Yeah. So it's, it's a, yeah, one of the things I stress in the book is though I'm, you know, emphasizing the American side of this as a U.S. historian, this is a, you know, an international operation here. Yes. Um, and the Americans are just part of the team uh, alongside the British and the Dutch. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's very easy or convenient for American listeners or readers to perhaps in a knee-jerk fashion dismiss the British contribution where, you know, you can't do that Most in, in light of fights like this. It, it's, That's right. It, it, it's really a team effort. And, and it's, it's designed that way. And you all need one another, and there are, there are strong bonds of comradeship, not just between the U.S. soldiers and the, the tankers they're fighting alongside or the, the British armored infantry, but the, the British airborne up at Arnhem. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why the Americans are going to fight so hard around Nijmegen to get up to Arnhem and, and help save those guys. Yeah, and, and then and yet, and yet they never make it. It, you know, it is a bridge too far. To, to steal blatantly from Cornelius Ryan. Right. And, is. you know, we look at the historical literature, and there there remains to this day a big debate over who's to blame, or if there is blame to go around, for the failure to exploit the capture of Nemegan Bridge. You know, right. With historians and, and even participants pointing, like, like Gavin, uh, Captain Lord Carrington, and others pointing their fingers at each other. You know, saying, well, it's 30 Corps, or it's 82nd Airborne, or it's the plan itself who, who's at fault. Mm-hmm. Where do you come down on that, or do you come down on that? Um, I come down on what I think is a bit different take than than uh, all of the others. I mean, I, I don't really subscribe to either what I consider to be somewhat extremes um, mm-hmm. of, of, well... Uh, no, I mean you can't. You've got to give Thirty Corps a complete break. Uh, they never should have even tried, and there was no way to get up to Arnhem. I don't necessarily subscribe to that, but I also don't subscribe to what I consider the, the sort of uh, somewhat parochial American view of, my gosh, you know, we took these bridges, and you should have gotten to Arnhem. How could you not do that? You you sat there and brewed tea, and mm-hmm. you know that's always the image the Americans love to emphasize. Yeah. And you just you just sat there, and you're just not a, as aggressive a fighter as, as we are. Um, I, I tend to think the whole controversy stems from the, the flaws in Market Garden. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're asking 82nd Airborne Division to do way too much to hold on to the Grossbeck Ridge, even as they get all of these major bridges, most notably the Nijmegen uh, Railroad and, and Road Bridge. These are huge objectives, and yeah. Gavin doesn't have his glider infantry on the ground. That's part of one of the things that goes wrong because of weather problems in uh, in England. So that adds to this issue for him. And then you're asking 30 Corps to move along a narrow road net uh, whose flanks are by no means secure, mm-hmm. as we've discussed in the 101st sector and all of yeah. these issues. You're, you're asking them uh, to move that rapidly uh, and to get up to an airborne unit that has dropped several miles away from its objective and has only been able to get one embattled uh, uh, battalion <laughs> anywhere near that bridge, you know, Johnny Frost and his guys. Uh, so by the time the wall crossing is made, uh, 30 Corps is fighting three different battles. 
one to hold the corridor open, one to hold the Grosbeck Heights, and one to get to Arnhem. And that's just simply too much. Too much for a single core. Right. Something's going to give. And so what gives is that you get these bridges... And, and by the way, it's not just the, the guys who cross the Wall River and capture, you know, the north end of the bridges. They have partners from the south, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's the 505th, but also British tanks, most notably Sergeant Peter Robinson onto the Nyamagan Road Bridge. And that yeah. took a lot of guts to do that when the bridge might have gotten blown up. Yeah. So that's another what I think is a silly argument that I saw in my research of, of the, the airborne troopers, the, the American troopers saying, oh, you know, the British tried to claim credit. They took the bridge. We got the bridge. And then the British saying, oh. Well, the Americans tried to make it seem like they just got, well, you both got the bridge. It's, they're big enough bridges, too, for both sides to of claim. Course. These are major bridges, and you're, you're enveloping it. That's the concept. So they both got the bridge, and they both fought extremely valorously. And so I think the Americans expected, and this is part of just in, the infantry mindset, when the Americans took the, the north end of the bridge, they expected swarms of tanks yeah. to come through and go up to Arnhem and, you know, that, that everything would be happily ever after. Well, that just wasn't operationally possible at that moment in time. Uh, that being said, it would have been possible for Horrocks, the 30 Corps commander, to, to maneuver enough of his tanks yeah. into position to make a push for one perimeter or the other in Arnhem, either Frost or the rest of the division over at Osterbeck. Yeah. It would have been possible to try, and I think they should have tried. Um, but I don't think they would have had a good chance for success in the long run, in my opinion. Well, that also raises just how viable the plan was to begin with. You know, Montgomery's grand ambition of an envelopment of the, of the Ruhr Valley from this one bridgehead. Uh, I, I remember taking courses in my own training with with Russell Wigley, and he he had a dim view on the overall prospects for the operation. And like you, he felt it shouldn't have gone forward to begin with. Mm, yeah, interesting. Yeah, but, yeah, it shouldn't have. No. Well, I mean, it's also the ignominy, I guess, at of the end game. You know, the the destruction of the first airborne division, the, the destruction of the Arnhem Road Bridge by the Americans. Right. You know, I mean that that's just like the, the final insult to an operate a flawed operation, perhaps, but also all the men who who had waged it. I know. Um, well, was that even necessary? You think, or was it a cynical, if not even a spiteful act? I think it was probably, you could justify it operationally, but it's a demission of dramatic defeat. <laughs> this was your key objective, to do what you wanted to do, to go into Germany, uh, and instead you destroy it. Well, that tells you you failed because you're trying to limit their mobility in the other direction. Um, now, I don't know that it was spiteful so much as just a uh, classic uh, <laughs> byproduct yeah. of terrible defeat. <laughs> uh, that's the way I see it, at least. And it's trying to, of course, limit their mobility on the island, uh, sure. you know, on that land between Arnhem and Nijmegen. And you can understand that to some extent. Oh, but. sure. I mean, especially you know, bringing up the island. I mean, Market Garden doesn't end on September 26th. I mean, that may be the day when Montgomery declares operations halted. But the story of Market Garden goes on, as you point out, much longer. Yeah, you know, particularly for, you know, and again, it's where the 101st Infantry comes in, the 7th Armored come in, you know, for for additional American troops being fed into the island and into the fighting for the Scheldt estuary. Right. Um, What can you can you describe for the listeners just the, the general context of the island? Right. The island is a neck of land, somewhat narrow. 
between uh, the, the the Rhine River and um, the Wall River, so basically between Arnhem and Nijmegen. And, of course, it becomes valuable after the failure of Market Garden because this is the way that the Germans can counterattack and perhaps get to the Nijmegen Bridge because, you know, once they lose that, they never really give up on getting it back or wrecking it. Um, they, they try and destroy it by air. Uh, they eventually... You know, are going to, to float frogmen down the river and blow up the railroad bridge and damage the road bridge. Uh, but eventually they're going to decide, let's launch a counterattack on the island, and it'll be against the 101st, which had been moved up there. Uh, the Germans lose a whole division, just destroyed mm-hmm. by the 101st Airborne Division. So you don't have a lot of room to maneuver on the island. It's, it's not a big place. Um, it's maybe three miles wide or so. Mm-hmm between the rivers, at least at its narrow neck, and then it, it opens up a little bit. Um, but it's low ground. It's a lot of dikes uh, that are, that, you know, so you're, you're really holding back the water in some respects so that the Americans are worried that the Germans will blow some of them up and flood them out. And they do um, eventually. And they do eventually, exactly. The, the 101st was prepared for that. I found some of their, you know, preparation plans, what to do in the event and, and all that, and some had to deal with that eventually. But uh, the island ends up as this very dreary, dead-like place uh, that, that the 101st fights in throughout much yeah. of that fall, and yeah. wet and miserable. It's a and wet, sweaty. cold, early fall, too, if I recall. Oh, yeah. And just as only Holland can be. Yeah. <laughs> And, of course, on the other side of it, you know, the 82nd is holding Grossbeck in the area around there near Nijmegen and similar kind of stalemate, cold, dreary, muddy kind of warfare. And then, obviously, as you mentioned, over at the Skelt, the 104th is part of that mess, and then the 7th Armored is brought in, not necessarily to the Skelt, but another uh, portion of Holland to just basically hold the line. You've, you've driven this sort of bulge in the German line, uh, you know, a salient that now you have to hold all that Market Garden has really accomplished. Yeah. And especially in light of, you know, the the real prize here, which was clearing Antwerp and clearing the Delta estuary. Do you think we should really assign full blame to Monty? For no, I don't. Delay there? Uh, no, I, I, in fact, uh, the argument that I advance in this book is ultimate blame goes to Eisenhower. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I certainly hold Eisenhower in high esteem as, as, you know, in terms of his whole career in command, but uh, no one's perfect, and I think this was his poorest decision, and just in my opinion. Um, it, Monty, certainly it's his concept. Um, you know, let's imagine he's an architect who's come up with blueprints that aren't good. Um, well, Eisenhower still told him to go ahead and build the house yeah. with those blueprints, and uh, it was something that he, he should never have approved. It, my, Eisenhower did not understand from the get-go what Market Garden really meant, the kind of irresistible momentum it would create for him, mm-hmm. that uh, inevitably, once he would order Market Garden to go forward, it would unravel his broad front strategy of advancing into Germany in favor of a single front, uh, and a single front whose concept uh, was extremely flawed in the sense of, well, let's get across the Rhine and go into northern Germany and go to Berlin, and if we capture the flag, the war ends magically. That's um, <laughs> just not how things work. It's almost, uh, if I could give you another crude, couple crude historical analogies, it's almost like the Union fixation with Richmond in mm-hmm. 1861 and 2. We just take Richmond, well, the war will end. Not quite. Or the American fixation with Baghdad in yeah. 03. If we just take Baghdad, the war will end. Well, no, there's a, you know, I mean, there are other things you've got to do and destroy the German army, mm-hmm. get the industrial ruler, 
collapse the Nazi regime. Berlin's nice, but you're probably going to be involved in urban combat. So Eisenhower really fails to see this. He sees it as, I'm just going to have a nice foothold across the Rhine and then do what I will with it. Right. Um, yeah, because to be fair, he wasn't looking towards, you know, I don't know if he was necessarily, you know, committed to to Montgomery's entire vision for the post. Oh, definitely not. And that's the... the I mean, almost immediately after that September 10th meeting in which he gives them the go-ahead for Market Garden, you start to see that conflict emerge. When a few days later, Monty is saying, you know, for the for Market Garden, I need these kind of supplies. And it's and Eisenhower's kind of like, ooh, you need that? Really? <laughs> and and uh, so then he has to, you know, scrimp and scrape around in order to give Monty the kind of supplies he wants. Because Monty had said, well, if you don't give it to me, i got to postpone it for about two weeks. Yeah. What's the purpose of this? You know, you got to have speed, right? So, so right there... It tells you that Eisenhower did not quite appreciate what he was getting into. Um, and I am an unrepentant advocate of the broad front strategy, so I'm coming at it from that perspective. Right. I, I think this was just a, a disastrous concept because it took away from what they really should have done, which was open up Antwerp. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you can do anything you want, practically. Um, and, and that's where Monty makes the mistake of thinking, well, a few Canadians can do that for me while I do market garden. Sure, the Canadians were even more strapped for manpower than the British. Oh, were they ever? Yeah. Big time, exactly. Yeah. Yep. You know, we've mentioned of civilians before. I mean, I can't help but bring them up again. You know, because another, again, frequently overlooked group here are those poor Dutch civilians, and I mean that seriously, who were forced to confront the hunger winter. Of forty four and forty five, do you think that Monty should bear some of the blame for that? Uh, I think so. Uh, you know, was it Prince Bernard when he when uh, he hears Montgomery describe uh, Market Garden as a ninety percent success or something? Mm-hmm. Says you know, um, well, you know, it's great, but I can't stand and I don't think my country can stand another uh, such success. Uh, Montgomery success. I mean, uh, yeah, I think that basically you've unleashed the, the dogs of war into Holland at this point, and. Uh, in a very, very flawed concept, and it has consigned the majority of Holland to to a very, very hard occupation, yeah. arguably harder than it would have been otherwise. Yeah, a very savage once the Gestapo is unleashed. That's, that's exactly right, and with the loss of thousands of people um, dead from either hunger or, mm-hmm. you know, the byproducts of that. Uh, of course, you could argue, as Montgomery here, I, I suppose he would argue, well, we liberated part of Holland, and that's true. Uh, but it was very costly, I suppose. And yeah. uh, you'd all, But he might also argue, well, if you didn't try, all of Holland was going to be under occupation. Well, I would say that's not necessarily true, because had they cleared out the Skelt Estuary, they would have had much more operational freedom to, right. to move all on the line. Well, Fifteenth Army's mission would have been un- would have been uh, would have unraveled. It was untenable. Definitely, it, it would have been untenable. That's yeah. right. Exactly. Yeah. Wow, John, I've enjoyed this. I really have. Uh, we're nearly out of time. I've got one last question. It's the same we ask everybody. Um, where do you go from here? What's the next project? Well, I've got two projects in the pipeline. 
Um, and one of them covers the uh, the first infantry division at uh, Omaha Beach on D-Day. We were discussing earlier, boy, you know, a really well-known event. How do we advance something new? Well, this is another example where I think there's a lot of new wrinkles to learn. I think it's one of the last D-Day topics that uh, that we can discover. Some really quite intriguing new information. So I'm focusing on that at this moment. And I've got another book that I'm working on, uh, American Soldiers Who Liberated Concentration Camps at the End of the War. Oh. And particularly three camps, uh, Ordruf, Buchenwald, mm-hmm. and Dachau. And uh, as well known as the Holocaust is, I don't know that we have a, a thorough understanding of how this affected American soldiers and and um, what this was like for them. I think that's been one side of it that hasn't been quite covered in the depth that perhaps it could be. No, I think it's, it's certainly room for a book like that. It would be very informative. And I, I'd be looking forward to talking to you about either one of them, to be honest. Great. So, I'm looking forward to that, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, full Professor John McManus, again, congratulations there. Oh, thanks. Appreciate it. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you for joining time. us today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And on behalf of New Books and Military History, this is our your host, Bob Wintermute, saying thank you for listening. You've been listening to our interview with John C. McManus about his recent book, September Hope, The American Side of a Bridge Too Far. This is your host, Bob Wintermute, signing off. And on behalf of New Books and Military History, thank you for listening.